The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is engineer and automotive technician Patrice Banks. She's author of The Girls Auto Clinic Glove Box Guide. Too many women feel... Well, hello. I'm going to have to read your short bio before we get into it. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. Welcome to the show, Patrice. Okay, now I just want to talk a little bit about you before we begin, okay? Okay. Too many, too many women feel powerless, this is so true, when it comes to their cars. Mechanic speak sounds like a foreign language, and the auto repair bill contains a lot of unnecessary or overpriced repairs. Engineer, that's you, and former auto airhead, Patrice Patrice Banks offers a one-stop do-it-yourself guide to auto maintenance, repairs, and roadside emergencies. In her trademark Red Heels, award-winning entrepreneur Banks is teaching women and millennials to grab the wheel and finally take control of their cars. And you're featured on TEDx, ABC Today, The Huff Post, and O Magazine. Now, again, welcome to the show, Patrice. Your time to talk. Uh, I just ha- I have an opening yeah, hello, hello. And the opening question, though, is this is 2017, almost 2018. Mm-hmm. And here we are, ladies. We still don't know what to do with our cars. We're still mm-hmm. intimidated. We still feel powerless. So why? Why? I mean, I mean, you're an engineer, so we do have to say, mm-hmm. I mean, you sort of have a heads up. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so why? Yeah, you know, yeah. I, so I was an engineer, and I always was that auto airhead girl. I hated my automotive experiences. I felt like I needed a guy to help me. I panic anytime something went wrong with my car, right? And I waited to the last minute to do repairs. All the things that's just the recipe for getting taken advantage of, right? And and not making smart choices with my car. And I was an empowered woman, right? I was an engineer. I had a great career. I owned a house. And here there's this part of my life I don't feel good about. I, I'm very powerless in. And so I was looking for a female mechanic. I never intended to be a mechanic, right? I, I was just like, I'm going to find ways to empower myself. I'm going to look for resources online. And I started searching for a female mechanic and I couldn't find one. I couldn't find those resources. And so I thought, there's got to be millions of women out there just like me that feel this way. I know there are. My girlfriends feel this way. And so I decided I was going to create something for these women just like me, auto airheads, the one who felt, you know, powerless in this situation. So I enrolled myself in automotive technology school at night to learn how to work on cars. And that's kind of how Girls Auto Clinic and the Chicanic movement were created. 
But Patrice, when you did that, I have several questions. First of all, I would imagine when you enrolled in auto mechanic school, probably you were the only woman. I, I, I don't know, yeah. but <laughs> were you? Yeah. Uh, another statistic. Yeah, it, yeah, most women own cars, but only 2%. This comes from your book. Account, we, women account for less than 2% of auto mechanics. Uh, mm-hmm. Just a, Yeah. And the other thing is you mentioned, you know, you were just totally ignorant about your car, what to do, felt powerless. I do too. But you know what I always do? And I... I think I still do. I mean, I always ask my boyfriend. I mean, could uh-huh. if I, <laughs> first I check it out with him rather than, you know, taking it on myself to figure out what's, I don't even know. I don't even know how to open up the hood. Yeah, you know, yeah. you're a perfect candidate for one of our girls' <laughs> yeah, auto workshops because we teach women, you come, you learn on your own car. And I say, if you don't know how to pop your hood, you're going to learn today. And there's no shame. There, you know, I don't want them to feel embarrassed or ashamed to ask a question because they think it's going to be a stupid question or because they're embarrassed of how they've taken care of their car in the past. I say to them, everything that you've done wrong with your car, I have done. I got it. You know, I've been there. This is the bottom. We're only going to get better from here. We're going to learn, you know, what what to do. We're going to feel better about our cars and how we take care of them. And most importantly, we're going to know, you know, how to talk to the mechanic. And we're going to make the right choice when it comes to the repair or the maintenance that we need. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's crazy that, um, you know, even when you have that guy there to help you, that some women are like, no, I don't want to talk to my husband. I get stories all the time of my customers that, you know, call in and say, well, we took it to this mechanic and, he, and he's talking to me and I say to him, well, let me call my husband. And, you know, what's, what's there in female empowerment right now? Women want to be empowered. They want to feel like they have the control and that they don't have to rely on their husband for all of these things because they know they are capable of knowing this and being able to speak about it for themselves. Yeah, and I think I'm in an even worse situation because I have three sons. So here I do, I'm continuing this whole thing. Call one of the boys, ask them. But the other thing is that you said, what I tend to feel ashamed about or that I don't want to admit to, like when I take my car in, that I don't know the questions to ask. And every, most any other situation, I know the questions to ask, but when, and Mm -hmm. and then they start talking to me in this, you know, this auto speak or whatever. And Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't understand it. And I don't want to really admit that I don't understand it. And I tend to say, well, okay, go ahead and do what you have to do. And then I get this huge bill and I have to pay the bill. I don't know if that's typical or not. Yes, that's very typical. You know, um, I, I tell people when I would go in, I had no clue what they were telling me my car needed. And I'd listen to what they said and it'd go right over my head. Even as an engineer, I'd be like, shoot, nope, I'm not going to get it. It's not for me. I already would just shut down, right, which is one of the problems because we, we're not comfortable, you know, which is a reason why I wanted to hire women uh, when I did this business so we could be comfortable when we were talking to someone about our cars because often we do make the wrong choice, even if we did need something. I didn't know, and I would just say yes or no, depending on my mood, depending on how much money I had at the time. I never saved up money for auto repairs, you know. Um, so it, it really is not a great situation to be in, and often when you're in a situation like that, you don't make good decisions. You make poor decisions that will cost you money now and long term. So what do we do if we come to you when we do come to your what mm-hmm. you call she canic workshops? Okay, mm-hmm. you have these workshops. So kind of run us through that. How do we yeah. get over all of this? Yeah, these feelings of like uh, what I don't. I also would like to kind of get into like where do you think it comes from? 
I mean, we're smart. We're, I mean, it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with a lack of intellect or understanding or, mm-hmm. uh, so maybe we should start, why, you know, the women that you, for instance, have in your workshops, where do they say that comes from? Is it, why are we not interested in it? Why don't we learn it, learn about our well, cards? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just cultural. It's like anything right now um, with women and, and things that we're being empowered in. It was just not for us, typically. When um, cars were being worked on back in the days, so it was for men, and the men would get their hands dirty. Women have to be clean, and they don't work with their hands or get dirty or get bumps and bruises. And we subscribe to those stereotypes. You know, even as an engineer, I was subscribing to it. I know how engines work. I know how they fail. And I was like, no, I'm not going to get this automotive stuff. Because for so long, I was told no. And it's, it's crazy how that psychology works. If you're told, no, this isn't for you, and we believe it, even if it's not true. So it's kind of unlearning that, unlearning what these stereotypes have set in place. And, and so people are able to see what women are, are capable of doing, and we can make our contributions in areas that you know, need us, like the automotive industry. They need us, you know. So women are the number one customer by far. Um, and they don't have people that look like her, or talk like her, or think like her in this industry. And so one of the things, for getting back to the question on the workshop, you know, so that's why I believe, like, this, this stuff is important. And my workshops, I first started doing them when I had this idea. I was in school still at the time, and I couldn't wait to share with women what I was learning because I was sitting in school and I was learning this stuff. I was so excited. And I'm like, this isn't rocket science, right? This women can get this. I know how I'm going to explain it to them so they know why it's important. And so I started doing these workshops where I knew I wanted them to be interactive. I wanted them to learn with their hands. So they bring their own car. You would bring your car, and if you don't know how to pop your hood, we're going to teach you how to pop your hood. You get underneath there. We talk about everything underneath it because as soon as you get under the hood, you're like, ah, what's all this stuff? It's confusing. And we break it down. And we talk about everything underneath there, what you can touch, what you can't touch, right? The things that you can, you can touch, we, we do those tasks. We talk about your fluids underneath the hood, why they're there, why they're important, what they do, and why you need to have them flushed. And then I have a parts table with all different types of parts like rotors and brakes and tires and belts. And I show you what things look like when they need to be replaced versus brand new. Because I tell women, mechanics diagnose cars a lot by thinking or by seeing, feeling, and smelling and hearing. So we can see it, hear it, and smell it and feel it. So can you. And so those are the types of questions you want to be asking them. And one of the most important things you can say is, can you show me what you're talking about? I want to see it. I want to hear what you're hearing. I want to feel what you're feeling. I want to, you know, I want to smell what you're smelling. And so that's the things we talk about in the workshop. Here's what we feel for it, ladies. Here's what we're looking at. And this is what it tells you. And so the book has all of this information. That's how, what, how the book came about because the workshop is wonderful. Women love it, you know, and we talk about things very relatable. Does your car have boogies, you know, or think of your engine like a vagina when we're talking about oil, stuff that women really relate to and they understand <laughs> like, this is important. Yes, yes, and they know it's important, <laughs> right? So, and they yeah. think about this, they're like, because getting your oil changed is the most important thing that you can do for your car. And we often skip those or go way over. And, we're, and I tell them, you want to spend $40 for an oil change or 3000 for a rebuilt engine? Oil is a lifeline for your, for your car. Um, you know, and so it's driving these things home. You learn how to jumpstart a car. And it's great because I had a woman come to a workshop 
And um, a couple weeks later, her car battery died, and she flagged down a guy, pulled him over to jumpstart the car, and he didn't know what he he was doing. And she said, let me show you. (laughs) And she had learned from coming from the workshop. And it was just an empowering feeling for the woman to kind of be able to help the guy for once, especially when it comes to a car. So women, after they attend the workshop, they cannot wait to take their car into a mechanic to kind of test out this new knowledge, right? They feel confident now, excited to go in and ask these questions and see, you know, what they've learned. And that was the whole purpose. And so the workshops were were getting popular, a ton of information, and you only really retain about, you know, 20% of that. So I had so much great information, I had to put it down in the book. And I also wanted to reach every woman driver, right? Every woman who's driving should never feel powerless, especially when we're the number one customer. This is our money we're spending. And we should feel good about our choices, and we should make the right choice and the smart choice. So I want to reach every woman driver, and this is the way to do it um, with this book. You know, I, I'm so excited for, for them to pick it up and to learn and to get working with their hands to go from an auto airhead to the Shecanic, right, and never feel taken advantage of again. I can see that. I mean, I'm sitting here with a book in my hand and uh, and having gone through it, I mean, because it's it's really an easy read, and you're also you're, you have the diagrams, the illustrations. It really makes, you know... Mm-hmm sort of illustrate what you're talking about. Um, yeah, uh, the book, Girls Auto Clinic, I'll mention it again. But so, but when you have the uh, clinics themselves or the workshops, were they just or are they just a, like a one-shot deal or is it over time or how does that work? So, yeah, so I, I hold them once a month and they're free because I believe that everybody should have access to education. And it's kind of my giving back portion. You know, Oprah is like, when you've learned something, give it away. And so I, I can't wait to talk about this stuff. We do them once a month, and it's the same workshop over and over again because at each month it's the same one. Because there's, we get, it's a basic, everyone, this is what everyone needs to know about their car. And so I'm trying to get that basic information out. Um, there is some more in-depth stuff that we can get into if you want to become like a second-level chicanic, but it's not necessary as a car driver. You know, the purpose was of the workshop is if you drive a car, here's what you need to know. So you wouldn't need to come back multiple workshops and learn um, these things unless you want to get a little bit more in-depth about working on a car. I have women say, well, I really want to learn to change my oil, you know, and I say to them, that's fine. Just want to let you know you're not going to save money by learning how to change your oil yourself versus taking it to um, a quick lube or to, a, um, you know, one, your mechanic. Because buying the oil and the filter yourself is probably going to cost you about $35, the price of an oil change. Then you have to buy the equipment and the tools to do it, and then you actually have to do the oil change. And if you're new to it, it probably will take you, you know, longer than 30 minutes. So when you put factor that all together, the price for you doing it yourself including the price of your time, is going to be more than 40 bucks. But a lot of women want to learn it just because they want to turn wrenches and feel like they've accomplished this, that they can use a tool and they can work on their car. And so I think it's a great, you know, um, workshop. Where are, the, where, are all your, uh, where are the workshops? Where are all your workshops? Right, right now I'm located in Philly. Philadelphia, and okay. we so, are yeah. looking to expand. I'm going on a book tour. Um, mostly on the East Coast, Baltimore and D.C. and all the way up to Massachusetts, doing book signings, doing workshops, and talking about the book. Are there any differences or big differences in, in, in cars? Like you say, the women bring in their cars, their own car to mm-hmm. work on. But to me, you know, I look at, and I'm not, and I've never been that interested necessarily in cars except 
the one that I'm buying for myself and it has to be practical mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff or whatever I'm doing at the time. But so are different cars very different? Like you say, you pop the hood open. Are they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So because you've got a whole bunch of different kinds of cars or mm-hmm. are, is it all very similar? So I kind of lump cars into two categories. You have the luxury cars and the non-luxury cars. And the non-luxury cars are the ones like your Fords, your Hondas, your Chevys, Toyotas, Kias, Hyundais, the one the average driver um, drives. Those are pretty basic, standard, the way they work when you lift up the hood, what you're looking at. There's, there's some variations right, um, especially between brands like Ford and Toyota, but most Toyotas are going to look the same. Most Fords are going to look the same. And so for that reason, mechanics can easily work on several different types of cars, um, not just one type. Where it, it really changes is the luxury brands. Now, these brands are built for the cars to be powerful, for the feel, for the drive, right, for racing or for going around curves and things. Sports cars and luxury cars are different under the hood because they have different engineering parts. And often you can't see some of um, the, the parts that you need to get to. Um, they're not designed really for practicality. Um, they're designed for drive and, and feel. So most people will take those back to the dealer, right, or directly to someone who's an expert on those because they, they get a little bit more difficult. And because of that, they're more expensive. And that's very important to think about how much it's going to be, not just to buy the car, because you can probably afford a luxury car, but can you afford to fix it once it starts breaking down? And it will, because every car will break and things on it will fail eventually. And so I see it all the time where people have a Mini Cooper or a BMW or a nice Mercedes, and they still have a car note on it and some electronic accessory because they're known for their electronics broke and they can't afford to fix it, you know, it gets, it gets a little crazy. So it's important to understand um, not just how much the car costs. And those are, I mean, it's really just those two things that are going to drive the difference. Um, and it's, so when we talk about them, the practical ones, like those ones often cost less to maintain. They're often less money to buy and they're less money to maintain. So you can, and you can take those to pretty much any mechanic. So that's the difference. Yeah, you know, I once I went, I was in Florida and I had to rent a car and I got there at 12 o'clock at night and I had rented uh, one of the simpler cars, you know, like a Ford or whatever. I thought I was renting that. I think it was a, an S, SUV. But I got there and there were like two or three like really young people there in their early 20s and they were saying, oh, but we're so excited because we have a car for the same price. It's like the, one of those luxury cars that you're describing. Mm-hmm. And I get mm-hmm. into this car. Patrice and I sit. I could, did. I had absolutely no idea. I you know I can't even remember. It wasn't a Maserati, but let's just say it was something like that. And they were so excited that they could give me this car for the same price. And I find I said, you know what, guys, I can't drive this car. Drive I, I, yeah. I, I, I don't. And if something happens, I have no idea what to do with it. You've got to get me a another car. I'd rather take the other. You know, even if it's more expensive but I need right. so yeah they got me a I don't know what a Buick something or other whatever it was and I <laughs> I said that you just yeah but it's sort of like what you're talking about it was like I had I you know I, I did not want to be stuck on this car at one o'clock in the morning somewhere and having no idea what to do with it so yeah, yeah to me yeah. the simpler the better I, yeah which is a safe yeah and that's a safety issue so you made the right choice <laughs> yeah um, and, and, and it happens a lot where people buy car you know buy a car and they're not 
they don't know how to operate it properly. They don't know how to operate it properly. They don't know how to take care of it properly. That's that's going to cost you a lot of money. <laughs> so if you know how to take care of it properly and you know how mm-hmm. to operate it properly, how long should a mm-hmm. car last? I mean, how let's say how much can you get out of this car if you really under sort of like understanding your body? The car is like you, mm-hmm. like you, isn't it? I mean, it's you know you take yeah. care of your yeah. Yeah, so, I talk about that because I mentioned, you know, I have a, a, a PCP, a primary care physician, right? I go to the same OBGYN every year. I go to the same doctor every year for my checkups, right? But with my car, which is the, the, your technician or your mechanic is like the doctor for your car, and we often shop hop, right? I say we cheat on our cars. Um, we cheat on our, our cars um, with the mechanics, and we don't take it to the same mechanic every time, you know, and it's because of convenience or we're looking for a cheaper price or we're just not good with selecting mechanics. And I, one of the things I preach to women is finding what I call your PCT, right? We have a PCP, primary care physician. Find your PCT, your primary care technician. And that is like three-quarters of the battle because when you find that PCT and you take your car to them every time, like this is like having a doctor you trust that you're going to go to when you're sick and you know that they're going to help you and they're going to take care of you and they're going to ease your concerns and make you feel good. I mean, that's really what we want. And when you have that person, you know, half of the, 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 the stress goes away we have with our cars because you know you can call them when that light comes on and you, you know you can trust that they're going to take care of you and they're going to take care of your car. So that's really important to find what I call your PCP. PCP. Okay, so then how long should your car last? Mm-hmm. So your car, if you're taking care of it well, right, especially oil changes, the most important thing that you can do for your car, flushing your fluids, um, taking, doing all the maintenance tests when they're due, cars will last 150 to 200,000 miles. It really depends on also where you live. You know, it's in extreme temperatures, they're rougher on cars. And often people will want newer cars because they want some of the newer technology. Now, when you and talk so about extreme temperatures, it could be extreme heat and extreme cold, both? Extreme cold, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. So, so you know, it's, it, they're harder on machines in those types of, of those weather. And it depends on how, you know, how you drive the car. Do you have a lot of stop-and-go miles on it, like you live in the city, right? Or do you have a lot of long um, highway miles? You know, it's rougher in the city, starting and stopping the car is rougher on it. And so, you know, you may have to get things replaced a lot more often. Um, but if you're taking car- care of your car properly, I'd say 150,000 to 200,000 miles. And, you know, they talk about the Japanese cars, Toyotas, Hondas, 200. It's not, it's not uncommon to see them with over 200,000 miles. And we, we usually just don't see people with over 150 because they want to get rid of it to get a new car. The cars will last a lot longer than most people keep them. They get rid of them, not because it's not lasting, but because they want a new car. Or they get rid of them because they ha- it wasn't taken care of properly and it's too expensive to repair it. Uh, does this, have you in your, because you, after doing all of these clinics and stuff, I would imagine, does that have any kind of uh, an impact on, say, the relationship between a woman and her partner if she becomes knowledgeable about cars and that's kind of like the man's domain and, and it still is in 2017? So, I, yeah, well, I would. Yeah. I don't think it's the man's domain anymore because I get so many men come up to me and they say, I need to know this stuff too. Men don't know this, these things. We do, we'll tell you a little secret. We just act like we knew <laughs> what was going on under the hood, but we really don't. Um, and so it really was just 
that at that stereotype it's for men, it's not for women. But really when it comes to the information that you need to know to make the right choice with your car, everybody needs this information. And so, um, you know, we find men, we have our male customers that come. We've got men that come to our workshops. And, you know, and there's a lot of guys who are excited that their girlfriends are getting excited about this and they want to learn and be, and be empowered, um, you know, because it, it makes them feel good. So we've got a lot of, you know, people that were on board, including, you know, women who are married or have boyfriends. They think it's, it's great. They do want to learn. They don't want to feel like they have to rely on a man for everything in their life. And that be self-reliant, self-sufficient when it comes to the things that they own. Yeah, so change your relationship with your car so you don't feel confused and powerless, message in the book. Mm-hmm. But now tell mm-hmm. us about these because it says you have opened uh, new, you've newly opened all female operated garage, which includes a hair and nail salon. Tell us mm-hmm. about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. One-stop so when shopping. I was an auto yeah. Airhead, yeah, when I was an auto airhead, I used to, working as an engineer, my girlfriend and I would go to, um, we worked together at the um, we would go to this specific uh, Jiffy Lube because there was a nail salon next to it, and we'd go and drop our cars off and get our nails done, right? And at the time, I'm not realizing this is foreshadowing, like, my life, <laughs> but as an auto heir, that's what I did. And when I was thinking about this shop and um, going back to school to be a mechanic, uh, I didn't want to, like I said, go back to school to be a mechanic. I was looking for a woman to help me. When I couldn't find one, and I was realizing that there was a ton of women that needed this service. I started asking myself, why, why don't we have it? And the reason is there's not women that want to work in, you know, there's not women that work in this industry. Um, you have, you're number one customer and people don't look like her or talk like her or think like her. So it was important for me to attack this problem on both sides. I'm going to provide a service for women that's going to educate and empower them with their car, and, but I'm going to hire women to do it. Because that's what's going to solve this problem. I can't hire men to do it because that's why we're struggling right now. There's too many men, and they're not getting the emotional need that, uh, that's going to allow a woman to approve a repair service or to buy that car. She's going to feel comfortable with another woman talking to her. And, so, and it's crazy because at the time, I can't find a female mechanic, and I'm saying I'm going to open a shop with female mechanics. <laughs> but then when it came time me to do this and I graduated from tech school and I started my workshops I didn't have to find those ladies they found me because there's women out there that know about cars that want to work on cars but they just had the opportunity because it's a male-dominated industry and we know typically in male-dominated industries it's very hard for women to thrive it's hard for them to get in and it's hard for them to stay in and get the support that they need and it's really it's really something that the automotive industry is struggling with and I thought I could help solve this problem by hiring women and giving them opportunities to be in positions of influence and power in the automotive industry by growing Girls Auto Clinic to be a national brand. And so we started with the first shop in Philly, and I've hired all female mechanics. They're amazing. They're killing it. Our reviews are the best I've seen in my life because women are just so happy. And finally, a place I can come, bring my car. I feel, I, as soon as I walk in, I feel good. You guys take us out there. You show us what we're talking about. You make sure we feel good about the choice that we make. You know, and that's the experience that I want to have. I want to have when I would go in. And the whole idea with the nail salon was, you know, of course it was sort of something that I had did that I enjoyed when I was an auto airhead. And I say I built a business for myself. (laughs) I was my typical customer. Um, But also 
it's important that women are taking care of their cars. And, we and have that's to take not, we're going to have to leave on that one. One minute left. One minute left. Okay. There's so much to talk about. Because so, also, the book, you got to go out and get this book. It is, I mean, ladies, yeah. it, it is empowering. The Girls Auto Clinic Glove Book Guide, Patrice Banks. Uh, yeah. You can buy it on Amazon, bookstores everywhere. And just give us a website mm-hmm. we can go to to get more information about you and the book. Girlsautoclinic.com or at Girls Auto Clinic and all social media. Ladies, we're here for you. Ask us any questions you have. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Great, yeah, great talking to you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Aliens with Gas, we are the Extraterrestrial Rock Show, airing every Saturday afternoon on the VoiceAmerica.com Variety Channel. <laughs> Whatever happens out and about, it kind of dictates our conversation. For sure. And we like to tie in a little bit of the past and obviously keep it real current. And real current was a couple nights ago right here in Phoenix, a phenomenon happened. On Thursday night. Phenomenon. 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 All right, never mind. <laughs> That's every Saturday right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is former collegiate rower and author, Michael Danziger, and also the founder of the Stepping Stone Foundation. Uh, he's author of Small Puddles, the triumphant story of Yale's worst oarsman ever. Michael Danziger, after graduating from the collegiate school in New York City, found himself a Yale freshman recruit for the crew team, only to discover that he was not going to make first, second, or even third boat. His humbling journey and the teammates he met along the way helped Danziger form his worldview. After stints at Oxford and Harvard and the dating game, 
Uh, Michael became a teacher and found his calling, inspiring him in 1990 to found the Stepping Stone Foundation, an organization dedicated to preparing underprivileged and underrepresented students, 2,700 and counting, for college. Welcome to the show, Michael. Nice to have you on. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that great introduction. Yeah. Well, you've accomplished all of that, and obviously the, the, the outcome is you've, your book, Small Puddles, which I understand it took you many, many years to write. Is that true? Well, absolutely it is true. I can tell you that story to start um, two years after graduating from college, so it was 1987. I decided that I wanted to chronicle my experience rowing for Yale because it was just like the experience of the people in Halberstam's The Amateurs or Stephen Kiesling's The Shell Game or even Boys in the Boat, except I wasn't any good and I didn't go to the Olympics, but I still pushed myself farther than I ever had and I thought that there was something valuable and persistent in my journey. So I wrote the book in three months and as I was driving back from the cottage where I was writing, I couldn't fit the computer in the trunk of the car, so I sold it with the book on it, didn't print it, didn't save it, and spent the next 25 years rewriting it. The next 25 years. Okay, that's a long time in writing a book, and I'm assuming a lot of stuff happened in those 25 years. That, uh, Yeah, go ahead. That's for sure. Well, I got married. I had four children. I started the Stepping Stone Foundation. I poured everything that I had into growing the organization. And so finishing off a book that I wrote as a lark in 1987, you know, wasn't as high up on the priority list, but it still was a nagging, really got to get that done piece for me. All right, so you went to Yale, you went to the collegiate school, you came from, a, a, you know, those are obviously schools, a lot of privileged young men at that time anyway, and I guess w- women too. Uh, and you found yourself, I, I just want to kind of connect the, relevant, the relevance to the book to how you've lived your life and and one of the reasons for uh, the Stepping Stone Foundation, because, I mean, they're obviously very, they're connected. Um, you know, you, yeah. They're connected, certainly, I would say, in the the virtue and the value of effort, persistence, grit, and determination is what will help Stepping Stone scholars succeed and certainly was what gave me such a valuable experience as a rower, albeit not a talented one, while I was at Yale. And given that my upbringing was, by all accounts, fortunate and privileged and opened doors that wouldn't have been available to me, I was so lucky when I was at Yale, and I write about it in the book, to be involved in the Big Brother program where I was linked up with a very poor boy from the toughest part of New Haven. And we spent four years together learning from each other. And I think without that experience and rowing, which was the persistence, I probably wouldn't have been interested in Stepping Stone. How did you stand up to those guys? I mean, you're at Yale. You're, you know, most all all of you and uh, intellectually at the top of your game. And you're the worst one on the on the team. Uh, with guys who are really out there to win, what was that like? Well, we were we were out there to win, um, but we were also out there to become part of a team and to push ourselves way beyond what we ever thought was was possible for ourselves to attain. So, 
I was sort of the last person on the bench in a basketball team or the kid on the football team who jersey is clean at the end of the game because he didn't play. But all during the week, you're part of the team. You're pushing people forward. You're part of the chemistry that makes the people at the top successful or not. And um, I thought that was valuable. And I thought that I had a, a clear linked experience with even the very best rowers like Mike Hart. Yeah, I, I mean, I understand like intellectually how you would feel that way. I was kind of like, like, you know, as a social worker, I'm interested like emotionally because you could start feeling like, hey, you know, these guys are, you know, they're really good and I'm not. And like I'm, I'm all of the stuff that when you're at the bottom of the, when you're, am I letting them down? I mean, there has to be a whole lot of stuff that's going on and you really kind of more than pulled through you as you say you became part of the team and you felt good about yourself how do you feel good about yourself in that kind of a circumstance because i at the end of the day i didn't measure myself by what boat i ended up being in even though i desperately wanted to be in the top boat or even the second boat i was just proud to never quit and always push myself as hard as i could and for a sort of a privileged kid who'd never had any bumps in the road Uh, so far in 18 or 19 years to know that meritocracies are good and, you know, effort has a virtue and even, and persistence, even if it might be hapless is worth it just because you've been persistent. Those were lessons I learned quickly and deeply. And so, and I'm sure these are the lessons that you taught your own boys, I would uh, assume. Um, so talk to us how that did impact your own family and yourself, not just be, you know, founding Stepping Stone, but your relationship with your boys and being a father and having had that kind of experience. That's, that's a great question. And I think that, that certainly being the founder of the Stepping Stone Foundation um, was something that my kids could relate to more than if I'd been a lawyer or an investment banker or what have you because they knew kids in their schools who were stepping stone scholars. They had seen the t-shirts around. It was sort of a brand. And I think at first, without really knowing what stepping stone was about, they were glad to be so associated with something that people thought was neat. And then as they got older and they learned more about the program and became better and better friends with stepping stone scholars at their schools, um, then they really started to understand the values and the premise behind Stepping Stone and, and the values that make me tick, which are everybody should be given an equal opportunity and the support that they need to succeed. And some need more than others, and that's fine. So and let's talk I specifically think- about Stepping Stone then, because, uh, you know, we just sort of generally talk, you know, mentioned like, wh- at, you know, what it is helping underprivileged kids uh, to graduate from college. How does the Stepping Stone Foundation work? Well, we work with the Boston Public Schools to identify students in the fourth and fifth grades who are around grade level, but seem determined and have grit and have at least one person at home it would be great if they had two parents, even one, or possibly a guardian or sibling, to help them you know, through an academic process. And then we have interviews and we have applications, and we winnow it down to about 130 kids each year, and we put them into a 14-month academic boot camp. The first uh, six weeks is the summer after they're accepted. That's at Milton Academy, and they get used to the rigors and standards of the best college preparatory schools, be they public or private, in Boston, 
and then we work with them during the school year to prepare them for tests and applications and financial aid. They get their acceptances, and they have, we have one more summer with them at Milton just to get them set, and then there's a whole post-placement program that assures success. So it's a deep-touch program, but it proves the premise that anybody, if they're willing to work hard, can succeed and go to college. Well, give us an example maybe of some of the kids or the ones you've had the most difficulty with or what are some of the issues that that come up in, in trying to put the ki- get the kids through the program and be successful. Um, like, can you tell us you know, well, some I of those? Mean, yeah. you know, there's the difference between boys and girls and you know where they are developmentally and where they would be sort of in the transition process to the college preparatory school. So we learn lessons all the time. But I know the kids who seem like they are can't miss kids are sometimes the ones who need the most help. And sometimes the ones who you thought you took a chance on are going to shine. So the, the lesson is there are so many pitfalls out there that you really need support whether or not you think you need it. And I think that's what separates Stepping Stone. And that, that's what really deepens the relationship between the scholars and the organization. It goes okay, on so- well after yeah, you're saying that sometimes you can't pinpoint the kids who you thought was going to be successful is or has more difficulty is not the one that you initially would have have uh, have thought was going to have the most difficulty. But what are those difficulties? Like what happens when you bring these kids I mean, into? The- I mean, certainly there are family difficulties that are you know that would be common to any inner city in in America. Um, the breakup of the family, um, financial difficulty, whatever it may be, or lack of you know stability in the neighborhood. So um, that would be one of the things. That would be yeah. Okay, so that's all these things, the life, the stuff that happens in life, and you have to help yeah. them to yeah, yeah, to maybe you know to maybe level the playing playing field and give them the tools they'll need to succeed at the highest level. And that's something we've been doing for 27 years and learned a lot of lessons along the way. Yeah, so in terms of the program, that's a long time. Uh, so we're, you've got, a, what, 2,700 and counting. Are you planning to expand the program or to, uh, to, to involve more kids or, you know, like, right, how is it evolving? Well, I, what we, we, there are um, chapters of Stepping Stone in Hartford um, and in Philadelphia, but I don't think we're going to expand to more cities. We really wanted to go deep in Boston and, and share through a network called NPEA, the National Partnership for Educational Access, that has about 350 programs similar to Stepping Stone, share the lessons that we get, you know, that we've learned, bad, good and bad, and take in the ones that they do. So I think we'd like to be part of the college access conversation and doing great work and deep work here in Boston. So let's talk about the people who are running the program, who are involved in the program directly with the kids or administrators. Who are they? Where do they come from? Um, well, a lot of, some of them, you know, went through the Stepping Stone program and graduated from college and decided they wanted to get into nonprofits or, or education. So we have a couple on our board and two or three who are working in the office. But beyond that, they're generally liberal arts graduates from colleges who are into education and equity and, and access. And we've been lucky enough to create a culture where we get great people, and a lot of them stay for a long time. 
um, the leadership team, or the, the president now, Kelly Glue, has been there 25 years, and she's responsible for every great thing that's happened. So it's in great hands. Yeah, well, I was going to say you're in the right community in Boston if you're looking for <laughs> liberal arts undergraduate uh, uh, students, right? You've got uh, the big one. Well, I, I guess it's the biggest college town. And actually, I'm not sure that's true. I think Philadelphia is. But um, in the United States, it's what it's definitely there's a lot of individual resources. We have an embarrassment of riches. I mean, there are so yeah, many great people <laughs> yeah. who want to work at Stepping Stone and do work there. And so we're really lucky to to be there and provide a, an opportunity for not just the scholars, but the people who work at Stepping Stone to really make a difference. So I know that, you know, kind of trying to piece this all together, I mean, in terms of your book and the work you do, but now you, as I understand it, yourself uh, have a huge, uh, I guess, obstacle to overcome or you've been in like you were diagnosed two years ago with renal failure and um, yes I got sick um what happened that was surprising and unsettling I just went for a checkup and a couple of days afterwards the blood test came back and my you know doctor said go to the hospital emergency room you're dying of kidney failure so that was you know a rude awakening and over the last Two years and change, I've had 11 surgeries and have been trying to prepare my body for a kidney transplant. And you know, that's, you know, that's what I'm really focused on, in addition to talking about the lessons that I learned at Yale and Sharon Small Puddles. But, you know, the, you know, the process of, of finding a kidney and, you know, going through the, you know, the operation and, and living a life afterwards is, it's consuming and, um, and it's really fulfilling in some ways and very interesting. Um, and How? I've got lots of great friends and support, but, um, you know, and they've, and, and, and they've helped me deal with what has been, as I said, a pretty unsettling time, um, but also a really gratifying time along the way. So you're saying like this happened just two years ago. I mean, was there anything that before that that you had any indication that you weren't no. well or... Nothing? That's a good question. Not, yeah. I mean, I guess if I were really picky and looked back five or six months before the diagnosis, I might have seen some things. But basically, I was maybe a bit more lethargic, and that would be about it, and you know, slept a bit more. <laughs> um, but it, there was a, what they call obstructive uropathy. So in the plumbing line that goes through your kidneys down into your bladder and out into the toilet, um, there was a kink somewhere, and it backed up the urine in my bladder, which splashed into the kidneys. And over time, the kidneys you know, were destroyed and shut down. So we discovered just in time. So I guess, obviously, this is definitely one of your biggest challenges, especially awaiting a transplant. Um, but this kind of ties into everything that you've done, or I guess it's, you know, all of the, the, the accomplishments and all of the, I guess your ability like to persist and pursue and uh, persevere all comes into play now when it comes to this, your health, right? I mean, you, all of the strength that you've had in the past, you got to use all you know, of that. All the lessons that I learned and yeah. talk about and sort of preach are, are actually coming to bear for me right now, and I have to be persistent, and I have to stay on top of 
appointments and medication and one thing or another, even though um, exhausted all the time because my kidneys are only functioning at you know eight or nine percent capacity, and it's tough sometimes to pay attention. So the obstacles get tougher as my ability goes down. So um, it's great to have a, a terrific medical team, which I do at Beth Israel, and I tell you, Boston's a good place to get sick. Yeah, it it is it, the best hospitals in the world, right? Mass General and all of it. But um, yeah, so I, I guess are there any times now because you're really challenged that you get depressed, that you feel like you can't do it, or that you know you need you you really do need to uh, you uh, more support or more support, or and that you have to be able to ask for it. Those kinds of things. Absolutely. Um, there are times when I feel really alone and scared, confused, uncertain, and it's just great to have you know, a, a, you know, a support network. And some of the people are folks that I've known for 30 years since I, since I went to college with them to support you because it's, um, you, know, it, you know, three days before I found out that I was sick, I was planning on running a marathon, which I don't know I would have done, but <clears throat> everything changed immediately. And one of the things that you mentioned is you have to be able to reach out, ask for help. Um, and it's tough for some people, and it's tough for me to do it because it changes sometimes the dynamic of a relationship. But if I'm not proactive, if I'm not gritty and determined, as I preach that others should be, then I'm probably not going to find that kidney, and then my life will be a lot shorter. So I've got to I've got to really live it now. Yeah, um, I think re- reaching out sometimes, especially for people like you, I mean, who have always, you know, uh, you know, you've been in a position of of helping other people, and now you need help. Not easy to do. Not easy to ask. That's a tough. That's a tough. That's a tough one for me to do. Any suggestions on that? Yeah, <laughs> that's a whole other show. That's a, oh. yeah. yeah, but I think you're doing it. I, well, the first thing is to be aware that you need the help. I mean, some people, I think, in in your situation, um, won't even admit to the fact that just admit right, to it. Let alone pain is a weakness. Yeah, you know, rather see, than a misfortune. Yeah, it's, and it's a strength. And I think the other thing is also when you ask people for help, uh, they feel. I mean, they feel good. About, you're giving them the opportunity to feel good about themselves too, because they like you, they love you, they trust you, and what you're saying is, I, you trust them, and you know, they're. It, it, so, it's it's something that they don't see you as weak, but it really it helps to empower them in a good way too. That's a great perspective. Yeah. Um, that you're giving them the gift of the opportunity to, you know, to step in. Exactly. Um, so and, a lot, and a lot of times, one of the things I think is, what would I do if the situation were reversed, or how would I feel if someone called me and asked? And I guess I would feel exactly as you described, it's sort of flattered and um, trusted. Yeah. And what about your boys? I, I mean, each one is different, obviously. They handle things differently, but it does they're affect con- their... You know, they're, con- yeah. um, that's, they're concerned... And I don't, you know, I, we haven't had the this could be it, but they know it's a very serious um, ailment and it kills a lot of people every year, and I have a very advanced stage of it. Um, but, and they check in regularly to make sure that, you know, the things are good. But by and large, it's so interesting that kids 
you know, have their own lives. And, you know, a couple of one works in New York, one's in D.C., one's in college, and one's in high school. And life goes on, but they check in, and it feels great when they do. Yeah. Well, then you've done your job. Because when they do have their own lives, and they, I mean, that that's what you want them to do, right? They're the next generation. So, yeah, they care, but they also care about themselves and their, you know, and what they're doing, because that's important, too. That sounds balanced and healthy. Um, yeah. And... I'm I'm proud of all of them. They're amazing kids. So, what's the? I mean, now you're you're sort of in a I don't want to say a waiting, but you you have to. Uh, I, I know what the question was. Uh, you, oh. yeah, go ahead. No, I was just I was excited to hear what the question was. Yeah, the question is like, I have. You just said there are a lot of people in your situation diagnosed with this particular disease. And I had never heard of it. So uh, what are we talking about just in terms of numbers? Well, um, I think it's about 90,000 people a year die of kidney, kidney disease. Um, and, and the, you know, so the wait for the, you know, for the cadaver kidneys or the donor kidneys just get longer and longer. Um, but it's, you know, as I said, it's symptomless. So by the time you find out you have it, Generally, it's you know time to go on dialysis or get a new kidney, and it's coming. As I said, I'm still learning about it, but there are lots of ways that people can help. and And I, you know, on my Facebook page and um, and and such, I've given lots of information. And frankly, three or four people are going through the process of seeing if their tissues and their kidneys match, and then even the psychological evaluation that donors and recipients need to pass in order to go forward. So, in other words, you can have a Facebook page, put the word out there that you need a kidney, and then people respond, and you're not on necessarily these waiting lists that they have at, uh, I guess, some of the major uh, hospitals or medical centers? Like, you can... Right. The waiting, the waiting lists are, are to receive a cadaver kidney, um, and for someone with my blood type in Massachusetts, that's about a seven-year wait, so that's not... Um, going to work for me. So I go to, if you can find a person who is willing to donate their kidney, so you can have a kidney either directly or through sort of a daisy chain um, arrangement, then you go right to the top of the line, and as soon as you and the donor pass muster with this transplant team, then you're off to the races. And that can be, you know, in three months. So... The key is to reach out without, I just don't want to be pushy and change relationships, but if someone was inclined, I certainly want to give them the opportunity to, you know, to take the next step. Yeah, most understandable. We have a, and uh, so maybe you could give us the information, if you want to, well, Small Puddles is the name of your book, and you can buy that online, bookstores everywhere. But now, like a website and or a Facebook page or wherever, so that we can, um, or the, yeah, we can contact it's small, you. Smallpuddlesbook.com, Facebook at backslash smallpuddles, and pretty sure that's it right now, but we're working on some more social media. But if you go out there, get in touch with me, I will absolutely write you back. Okay. And that includes the Stepping Stone Foundation as well. You can just, you can, that's a, a separate they website. I'll give all the information for that as well. And by the way, all proceeds from the sales of this book go to benefit Stepping Stone. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show, talking about your book, sharing your story, Michael. 
Zig, I didn't say that. That my uh, Michael. Either Keith. way, it sounds great, and I'm privileged to be on it. And thank you so much. Great, thank you, Michael. Um, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.